Hello, listeners. We're on a late summer break here at the LARB Radio Hour. So in the meantime, we're listening back to an episode that we recorded in 2021 with the writer Elizabeth Colbert about her book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. We thought in this summer of record-breaking heat and drought and flood, this would be as relevant now, alas, as it was then. But the book also talks about man-made intervention into nature and gives us some possible small reason to hope there might be something to do about climate change. So enjoy and see you soon. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined by my co-host today, another editor-at-large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have Elizabeth Colbert on the show, and she is talking about her new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. What was your reaction to the book, Kate? I mean, I, I knew what was coming. I knew it was coming when um, I saw her name on the cover and I saw the title, but what was your reaction to the book? I mean, I have to say, like, I am someone, as much as I am disturbed and completely, you know, believe in climate change and think about it often, I'm also someone who totally avoids reading much about it because I always fear that it's going to be so depressing. And I thought that this book was, as I was reading it, I was like, well, actually, this is very interesting. And there's so much to think about. And I wasn't focusing so much on the dire, the meaning behind what the stories are until I got to like the very end. And then I did just like sob a little. Yeah. Likewise, I also don't read so much about it. I mean, I think also part of it had been that over the past four years, the political, I mean, whatever, over the past of our lifetimes, the political situation hasn't been good, but in terms of climate change, but over the past four years, it has felt truly hopeless. And so I think that was a particular deterrent, but I agree. I think, so this book, Elizabeth Colbert is probably best known for Sixth Extinction. And this book is a little bit of a different take, I think, in that it's about human intervention in nature and ultimately it has to do with climate change, definitely. But as she says in the interview, it's it's sort of a case, it's a series of case studies of the different ways in which we intervene. And, and she does sort of start small, which I think is also helpful in terms of thinking, you know, approaching the end and then starting to think about the very, very large repercussions of our constant interventions in nature, climate, speciation, evolution, I mean, genetic modification, you name it, right? There's like almost nothing that's untouched There is an intervention. That's why it's yeah. the Anthropocene, yeah. But it's a very interesting conversation. And at the very least, if something isn't hopeful, at least it's informative. Totally, yeah. I've definitely reverted yeah. to just like being a total misanthrope and praying for the hastening of the of the end because I think that we deserve it, but that's just the, only, that's the only way I can cope. I just think I can't wait till the earth is free of us. I agree. Also, my my partner is often reading like sci-fi and there's, you know, all these books about people sort of outlasting the universe and traveling somewhere else. And I'm like, just, you know what? Why? What are we doing? <laughs> what are we going to bring to planet? Exactly. Just leave it alone. Anyway, but in the meantime, we're here and I guess we should have a podcast and a radio show. So exactly. So let's get to our interview. Let's do it. 
have Elizabeth Colbert on with us today. Elizabeth is the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change, as well as the book The Sixth Extinction, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. For her work at The New Yorker, where she's a staff writer, she has received two National Magazine Awards, which is not enough, and the Blake Dodd Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Her new book is called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, a book, as she says, about people trying to solve problems created by people trying to solve problems. In short, it's a book about harnessing nature and the many ways in which we have done that throughout the world and are looking into doing it in order to combat climate change. And the book explores the many many downsides of the ways that we've attempted to do it. And Elizabeth is kind enough to talk about it with us today. So thank you so much, Elizabeth, and congrats again. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth, I think when I at least think of climate change, I think of it as the inadvertent reaction to the way that humans live on the earth. But this book focuses on a very, you know, applied kind of control of nature by human beings that also results in the world changing. I wonder, is that different than climate change in your view? Is that, you know, a substratum of it? Maybe you could just talk about where that fits in in the bigger picture. Yeah, sure. So a bunch of case studies, as it were, of ways that humans have intervened, I guess is is maybe the word, or in natural systems. And we start with sort of localized cases and we move up to the broad and the global. And so climate change is the broad and the global. Obviously, the book starts off in Chicago, where in the last century, Chicago decided to, the Chicago River, which bisects the city of Chicago, used to run into Lake Michigan. It was the conduit for the city's waste for many, for a long time. It's human waste. All of the waste from the stockyards were flowing into Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan was and remains the city's sole source of drinking water. So this was a very big problem. And humans decided to intervene in that natural system by reversing the flow of the Chicago River. And that had was a tremendous engineering feat, a tremendous engineering marvel of its day, one of the biggest engineering projects of the time. It was successful. They reversed the flow of the Chicago River And now Chicago's waste flows away from Lake Michigan down towards the Mississippi, really ultimately into the Gulf of Mexico. And so that's an example of a human intervention that had unintended consequences. That was a conscious intervention to reverse the flow of the Chicago River. It had unintended consequences, which I talk about in the book and which we can talk about. Then there are also many ways in which we've intervened, as you say, inadvertently. So climate change is the is a side effect, an unfortunate, to put it mildly, side effect of having burned a lot of fossil fuels and cut down a lot of forests. We didn't intend for that, but it has. it's also a global scale intervention in a natural system. So in terms of some of the case studies, they really range widely. You look at the Chicago River, you look at the pupfish in Death Valley, which I'd never heard of before, very interesting. You look at the toads in Australia. Can you talk a little bit about how you chose these different cases and what your feeling was in terms of what they illustrated about the ways in which we intervene in nature? Well, each one of them represents a way in which we have intervened, as I say, either in some cases very consciously, in some cases unconsciously, but very consequentially. And in each case, people are looking 
to assert a newest form of intervention, the results of which we're not too crazy about. So in the case of the Chicago River, to go back to that for a second, what happened when after the Chicago River was reversed, it was reversed via the building of this canal, the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, which connected Chicago, the Chicago River to, as I say, ultimately to the Mississippi through a series of tributaries of the Mississippi. And that had the result of connecting these two major drainage basins in North America, the Great Lakes Drainage Basin and the Mississippi Drainage Basin, which used to be separate, have been separate for thousands of years. If you were a marine creature, you could not, an aquatic creature, you couldn't cross from one to the other. And now you can. And that has created all sorts of problems because now species can pass from one to the other. Both of those systems are highly invaded systems, lots of invasive species in both systems wreaking havoc on the Great Lakes in the Mississippi. And in particular, we now have Asian carp in the Mississippi system. Asian carp are often thought of as one species. There are actually four species, but Asian carp have been incredibly successful invaders in many waterways. They make up something like three quarters of the biomass now in many places, some places even more. They are really crowding out native fish and the Great Lakes, folks who fish in the Great Lakes, the fisheries of the Great Lakes really do not want them to get into the Great Lakes. So this has led to a whole new series of interventions where literally now parts of the river are electrified to try to keep species on their own side of what used to be this natural divide. So, you know, we intervened by creating this connection between those two basins, reversing the river, and now we're trying to intervene again to sort of impose a new form of separation without actually separating the rivers. So I think I say in the book, first you reverse the river, then you electrify it. And in each case that I look at in the book, something like that is going on where we intervened majorly, decided we didn't care for the results, and now are looking to intervene again. And also, I don't know if I'm wrong, but the Asian carp were also introduced, right, as well. They weren't native. Yes. Yes. And that's a really interesting story in and of itself. The carp were introduced with good intentions, I should say. It was a time in the 60s when, you know, Silent Spring had just come out. There was a lot of understanding that a lot of the toxic chemicals we were using to try to control, you know, what we refer to as pest species were really dangerous to other creatures, non-target creatures, and also to ourselves. So there was a lot of effort to find what are called biocontrol agents. So sort of use one species against another species that you don't like. And that's really the ending of Silent Spring. If you read Silent Spring, there's a long discussion in that about how we could use biocontrol instead of this chemical control. And so these species of Asian carp were brought in to either deal with aquatic weeds, one species is an herbivore and it would eat aquatic weeds. Another species was brought in in the hopes that they would help solve some of the, eat the algae out that that would help solve some of the nitrogen loading problems that are caused by human sewage. These were brought in to do biocontrol. They got loose and they have wrecked havoc ever since. Reading the book, what it kept on just like coming back in my mind was the expression return of the repressed. <laughs> and uh, it seemed to me, yeah, that the, any intervention would result in something much greater 
than anticipated, just even in the smallest ways. I guess I'm wondering, this isn't really in the book, but through your research, have you found like any, you know, very successful man-made kind of nature interventions that were able to continue and abate problems and didn't have a negative effect? Well, I mean, on some level, many, many human, you know, the whole human project, I mean, you could argue everything we're doing is, you know, an intervention in a natural system, right? I mean, farming is an intervention in a natural system. Now, is there any major intervention damming rivers, levying rivers? Is there any one of these that hasn't had for some creature or another, some kind of repercussions that you know, not necessarily ourselves. That's a really good question. I don't want to claim to have the answer for it, but I think that if you look down at a really nitty-gritty level, you would find that, you know, something's been displaced. Whenever you simply take land, plant a crop where there used to be a grassland or there used to be a forest or whatever there used to be, something was displaced when we did that. Now, many of those are lost in the mists of time. We've been farming much of the world for, you know, 10,000 years now. We don't know even what was there beforehand. But I think that we do kind of have to acknowledge that every space was occupied by something before it was occupied by people. One of the examples in one of the chapters that I found particularly interesting was about New Orleans and the flooding of the Mississippi, which I think intuitively, I would not think that there were any inherent benefits to a river flooding necessarily. <laughs> I mean, it seems relatively neutral in, in, in terms of events, unless of course there's people nearby or animals or any other kind of species that might be affected by it. But in the chapter, you make it clear that in fact, what we have done in New Orleans is actually destroying New Orleans in a different way. Can you talk about that a little bit and the kind of reverse effect that our stopping of the flooding has had on destroying the city. Yeah, so that, that's a really, really interesting and I would say sort of beautiful and elegant example of this phenomenon that I'm trying to bring to life here. So this story begins a long time ago when you know the Mississippi has been flowing for a long, long time and carrying a lot of sediment from the Great Plains down the Mississippi. And every year in pre-levy days before the river was levied up, it would overflow its banks and dump a lot of the sediment as it was hitting the Gulf, slow down, dump a lot of sediment over the landscape. That would create what's known as a delta lobe, a bulge of land. And over time, the river, the gradient would get too steep. So much land had been created that the river would decide this is not a good way to go. I'm going to take a faster route to the sea. And the river would, would sort of flip, totally change its course and take a faster route to the sea, lay down a new delta lobe. That is how all of the Mississippi Delta was created, how all of Southern Louisiana was created over many landscape. Native Americans were living on that landscape, you know, even as it was being formed. And presumably when the river overflowed its banks or when it changed course, they responded by being very adaptable and they got up and moved. And then the French arrived in 1718. They found the city of New Orleans and they have this sort of colonial mindset of, well, you know, we're not going to let this river push us around. The river's now going to have to stay put. And they begin this project 
they get flooded out incessantly, you know, constantly. And they begin this project of levying up the river. And a lot of those early levies, that was really backbreaking labor. It was done by slave labor, absolutely. And they start levying up the Mississippi on both sides of the Mississippi to keep it in place. And now New Orleans is protected by billions of dollars worth of flood controls, flood walls, levees, revetments, I mean, pumping systems. It's just incredible water management system. But the end result of all that is that, and that has protected New Orleans. So New Orleans still exists, you know, it's still there 300 years later. But it's sinking very fast. It never gets a pulse of fresh sediment anymore. And that whole delta lobe that New Orleans is on is sinking very rapidly. And so now the proposal is, it's sort of untenable over time between the sinking and sea level rise. It's in a pretty precarious situation. And so now the proposal is, well, we're going to have to flood the area, but we can't you know, just flood people out. So we're going to have to do sort of controlled flooding to counteract flood control and try to spread some of the sediment in the Mississippi that the Mississippi still carries, which now gets shot off the southern tip of Louisiana into the Gulf of Mexico. We're going to have to try to spread some of that over the land so that we can prevent the whole place from sinking away. And there are several really humongous new control projects underway that are going to attempt this, this controlled flooding to counteract the effects of flood control. Such a mess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a somewhat jury-rigged system, but it, it's possible. You know, this system worked for 300 years. Everyone loves New Orleans. I love New Orleans. It's possible that, you know, we can preserve it for another 300 years. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. KPFK 90.7 FM. We now return to our conversation with Elizabeth Colbert, author of Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. So I think I'd like to make time to talk about the final couple of chapters in your book that are dedicated to solar geoengineering. That's also what gives your book the name, Under a White Sky. And speaking of triage, it seems like we should that's probably the, the biggest form of what looks like triage. Can you explain to listeners what solar geoengineering is? Maybe not the whole thing. I know that would take a little while, but because it also, I think, raises interesting questions about some of the other things that we've talked about, which is choice and how much choice we really have in the matter and how many options we really have. I mean, human intervention is creative. It seems you know, we're not running out of ideas necessarily. <laughs> Maybe we should run out of ideas, <laughs> just get it over with. But anyway, so it, it's a good conduit, I think, for some of the other sort of bigger questions that, that you raise in the book. So um, would you mind, yeah, just explaining what solar geoengineering is? Right. So uh, in the process of reporting the book, I spent a bunch of time actually at Harvard, which has hosts what's called the Harvard Solar Geoengineering Research Program. And the idea behind uh, solar geoengineering is that, you know, we've we've already intervened. We've intervened in the climate very dramatically by pouring a lot of carbon dioxide into it. That's, you know, mostly from burning fossil fuels, also from cutting down forests. And 
you know, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. I'm sure your listeners are all familiar with this by now. That's climate change. We, carbon dioxide traps heat uh, near the surface of the earth. That's, that's why we're getting global warming. Okay, so one of the really, really profound challenges for dealing with global warming is that carbon dioxide, once you stick it up in the air, it, it hangs around for a long time and it will continue to warm the earth for a long time. So it's really hard to come up with a strategy to deal with climate change quickly, to reverse course here. And one of the few methods that scientists have come up with being one way in the atmosphere by dumping a lot of carbon dioxide in, now we would intervene in a new way. We would shoot some kind of compound into the stratosphere. We'd need a fleet of specially designed planes to do this. We might use sulfur dioxide. We might use calcium carbonate. This is kind of up for discussion right now. Um, and what that would do would be it would create this reflective haze, which would bounce sunlight back towards space. So we would actually be receiving less direct sunlight on Earth, and that would have a cooling effect. And perhaps uh, we could you know, counter the effects of the carbon dioxide we've dumped into the atmosphere by dumping more stuff into the stratosphere. Okay. Now, you know, when you say it that way, it's like, you know, definitely what could possibly go wrong. Um, and people, there are many scientists who consider this, you know, I, I quote one of them, I think he says a broad highway to hell. Um, but there are many other scientists who would say, look, what are our choices? Once again, only bad choices. If you can Get, if you're going to get to a point, and it's very possible that we will, where you know agriculture is disrupted, fisheries are disrupted, the you know Greenland ice sheet is is melting with potentially you know 20 feet of sea level rise behind it, uh, and you could potentially with this method ameliorate that, could have a cooling effect. Can you write that off? And that is a question that you know we're not going to answer tomorrow or the next day but may assert itself and one of the interesting things about geoengineering solar geoengineering is it could be done pretty you know not by not by an individual it probably can't be like a James Bond movie where one you know bad guy decides to do it by himself but it could probably be done by a group a group of countries the whole world wouldn't have to agree to it uh, a group of powerful countries could decide to do it. You know, you you could also imagine World War III breaking out. There's all sorts of things you can imagine about it, but it, it raises a lot of pretty, pretty, pretty profound questions. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I should also say, I will also explain that if you shot these, you know, reflective uh, compounds into the stratosphere, You'd have to keep doing that, right? They would fall out of the stratosphere after a couple of years, so you'd have to keep doing that. Um, and one of the effects that they would have uh, in, were in a place where now, you know, a pretty unpolluted place where you would expect to see a bright blue sky on a sunny day. Uh, if you were doing solar geoengineering, you would the sky would have sort of a whitish tinge. And that's where the title comes from, under a white sky. You know, just to close, I wonder, you know, reporting out this book or and all and all the work you've done, I'm sure people always ask you, you know, 
how do you keep hope? <laughs> how, how aren't you so depressed? I mean, I'm sure you just get that question all the time. But I also wonder if the goalposts of hope for you have changed, knowing everything you know about, you know, where we're possibly headed and all the ideas that people have to um, maintain not really a natural status quo, but more a human life status quo, the eventual outcome of humans not being able to live on the earth, if that ever seems like hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I wrote a book called The Sixth Extinction. And after, after that came out, you know, the question I would, would always get is, are humans going to go extinct? Uh, that seemed to be, you know, despite my best efforts, what people really cared about. <laughs> and my answer to that is, if you were betting on a species that could live with humans on the planet, well, he, humans would be high up there, right? Humans are incredibly adaptable. We live, you know, in Antarctica. We live in many, many different climates, many different you know, habitats, as it were, Uh, we're very smart and we have these amazing technologies. So I don't think, you know, humans are in danger of going extinct anytime soon. And I don't think they're in danger of, you know, not being able to live on planet Earth. But there's a big, big gap between going extinct, which would require, you know, all 7.8 billion of us or whatever to die out, and everything proceeding, you know, happily ever after by the standards of, you know, 2021. And I think one of the lessons of, of COVID is or should be, you know, things can go, can go south in all sorts of ways um, that are and are not anticipated. That, you know, the unanticipated is increasingly going to happen. That doesn't mean, you know, that we're all suddenly going to, you know, give up and, uh, and that the world is going to come to an end. There are, there's all sorts of forms of muddling through, you know, some better and some worse. And that gets us a little bit back to the question of, you know, do I subscribe to any of these interventions? What do I think of them? And, you know, the fundamental answer is, I'm not sure. Uh, as, as I quote one of the scientists talking about, Geoengineering in the book, he says, you know, we don't get to decide. Scientists don't get to decide. The political system will decide, and that's also my, you know, sort of defense as a journalist. I don't, I don't get to decide. I can put this out there and point out to you the potential um, benefits and the potential perils of of what we're doing. I'm trying to sort of point out a pattern of the human mind that you know we get to a point and the next thing we reach for is a new form of intervention. That's sort of the pattern that I'm identifying, but whether that's good or bad, whether there are better alternatives that we can find, that is kind of not my call. And so I want to put that out there and I want to get people thinking about it because I feel pretty confident these are going to be the big issues of the coming century. I have kids. I am very concerned about what the world will look like for them but I don't get to decide. That seems like a good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> At least for those who think that this is an optimistic book, maybe oh, that right. would be exactly. a, good, a good place to end. <laughs> exactly. You can take it however you want. How's that? Yeah, that's nice. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for talking to us. Thanks for um, having me.
We've been speaking with Elizabeth Colbert. Her new book is called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. Thank you.